Hey there, are you sick and tired of feeling sick and tired? Join Adol Kozilski and Feige Stern as they explore ways to reverse chronic illness and achieve vibrant health. Your health is your only wealth and together we can be better. Hashtag Healthy You, Wealthy You. Good morning and welcome to everybody. Good morning, Feige. How are you today? Good morning, Adel. Very well. Thank you. How are you? I am very, very. The topic we're going to discuss today is a topic that I think is very pertinent to, to, to everyone, particularly to the mothers out there and to all those ladies that are in their re- reproductive years and are having children. Um, and that is the topic of breastfeeding. One of the things we know about breastfeeding is that it is a God-given uh, gift, that it is something natural that uh, um, God gave to us to help us to uh, ensure that we can give the best health to our baby. And there's so been so much talk and so much change. I remember certainly from my age, I'm now a grandmother, but certainly in my age, my mother was forced to give uh, bottles because in those days, that's what it was. You had to give the bottle. And it, it took a, a while, even while I was having children, to, you know, to change and to embrace breastfeeding. I think there's been been a big resurgence on it. Um, and today we really, really need to understand the benefits and the, this God-given um, uh, a gift that, that, that we, 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 we have in order to help us give that, that first boost to our children in a, in a very, very powerful way. And we are very honored again to have Dr. Jack uh, Castle with us a famed pediatrician in Johannesburg, South Africa. We, um, I can spend a lot of time giving him a lengthy interview, but um, after the last time we had Dr. Castle on the show, we know that he is well-known and everybody was really, really excited to hear his wisdom. So good morning, Dr. Castle. Thank you again for joining us. Morning, everyone. Morning, Peggy. Morning, I'm going Dr. to give Kassel. over to you, Dr. Castle, because you have lots to say about breastfeeding. So the floor is yours. Thank you. I'd like a 10 to 15 minute introduction and rather widen the subject to all types of feeding with particular emphasis on breastfeeding, trying to show in the end why the breastfeeding with any argument is the best way to feed, but not necessarily the best way for some people. And I will deal with breastfeeding, with artificial feeding, with specialized feeding as well. I want to quote a statement in my book that I'm writing, and this is as follows. The best way of feeding a baby is a feed that meets, uh, that needs to be mutually beneficial for both the mother and the baby. This is correct in a hundred percent of cases and has always been my yardstick for feeding. Many slogans have been utilized to promote one or other type of feeding, including breastfeeding. And I will quote three of the slogans and tell you why they sometimes have limitations. The first slogan is breast is best. The second slogan is if you want to breastfeed, nothing in the world will stop you. And if you don't want to breastfeed, nothing in the world will make you. No, I like that. <laughs> the third slogan is you cannot buy love in cans. That that was the uh, slogan when they first pr- proposed only breastfeeding and nothing else. 
It is unfortunately the slavish adherence to these slogans which can lead, unfortunately, to cumulative distress in both the mother and the baby. And in my talk, I want to outline some of these things. Let us first, to understand what I'm going to say, examine the physiology and how breast milk is produced. Ever since the days of Adam and Eve, Abram and Isaac, Sarah and and all our ancestors, the breast has always produced milk in the same way. There is in the brain a gland called the pituitary gland. This gland releases a hormone called lactogenic hormone. The lactogenic hormone then acts on the breast cells to produce milk. And the milk produced then serves as a further stimulus to the pituitary to make more hormone, to make more milk. This is known as the pituitary cycle. But there are two vital areas that regulate this cycle, which I have not yet mentioned. The first area is the nipple. The nipple consists of two portions. There's a fore-nipple, the front part of the nipple, which has no nerve endings whatsoever. And nothing will be achieved by allowing the baby to just suck on the fore-nipple. Then there is the hind nipple, which is packed with nerve fibers. And it's only when the baby latches and sucks on the hind nipple that the pituitary reflex gets stimulated and milk gets produced. This is a very important principle of breastfeeding as it lends to the statement, what the baby takes, you make, and what the baby doesn't take, you don't make. Can I stop you there, doctor, just for one minute, because we have to go for a little bit of, a, of an air break. When we get back, we will, we will continue um, uh, and this discussion. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Edo Kosilski and Fagy Stern. Welcome back, and we are in discussion with Dr. Kassel about breastfeeding and nutrition and our children. And if you'd like to join this conversation, you are most welcome. You can SMS on 34519 or on 61 and you can ask the question um, or any questions that you have about breastfeeding or any comments that you want to make. Dr. Castle, we're back with you. We, were, we, we stopped you in the middle of a thought. Um, please continue. Thank you. Well, I was discussing the physiology of breastfeeding, outlining the cycle, and talking about the influences that influence the cycle. And we were in the process of talking about the nipple, that the hind nipple had all the nerve fibers which were necessary for stimulation uh, of the pituitary to produce lactogenic hormone. Right. Now, if this does not take place, it also tells you that persistent complementary feeds and irregular feeding schedules will seriously affect the rhythm of the pituitary cycle. It doesn't matter how often you feed, and this can in, enter into question time. You, you can feed four hourly, you can feed three hourly, you can feed two hourly, you can feed one hourly, you can feed half hour, you can feed quarter hourly. You can be, you can be <laughs> naked. Sometimes feel like you are doing it every half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> 
you maintain the pituitary cycle. So therefore, the wise mother will go on extending the baby for three, four, five, or even six hours and not cut it down. It's important to maintain the rhythm of the pituitary cycle. In addition, the overuse of breast pumps and expressing of the breasts does not serve to stimulate any pituitary defects. Often these methods are employed when the rhythmic cycle of breastfeeding has begun to be seriously interfered with. From the above, it is obvious that the best way of feeding the baby, of breastfeeding the baby, is the natural way of allowing the baby to stimulate the nipple. There is no other way you can produce breast milk on this earth. The, se- the second factor in breastfeeding is a gland called the hypothalamus, situated above the pituitary gland in the brain. This is the second vital factor because it is the emotional center of the brain. And if the hypothalamus gets stimulated and the, uh, and the hypothalamus says no, there are no ways that the cycle will function. And there are very important ways in which the hypothalamus factor can influence and influence successful or unsuccessful breastfeeding. The first question I always ask a mother is, do you or don't you want to breastfeed? The well-to-do mother, and you see this in the statistics of breastfeeding, and I'll, I'll digress a moment to just tell you the statistics of breastfeeding. The most successful breastfeeders, 80 to 90% of them are in the state hospitals. As you get into the private clinics, in the general wards, it's about 70%. In the private wards, it's now increased to 60 to 70%. And sometimes in these wards, with the best intentions in the world, the breastfeeding cannot be established. And the hypothalamic factor has something to do with it always. The mother may not want to breastfeed in the first place. If this is so, breastfeeding will really will really succeed. Other more subtle influences that may play a role in the hypothalamic factor are the postnatal blues. Now, the postnatal blues I will explain in question time. Also, depression, subacute, or chronic depression. Admittedly, these situations can be dealt with. They certainly can be dealt with by giving psychic energizers and mood stimulators and lactation stimulators like eglinol. But generally, it is very difficult to establish feeding when the hypothalamus says no. The hypothalamus has to be controlled. So those are the main factors influencing breastfeeding. As far as the baby is concerned, as Jews and as Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews, we belong to a very elite race that marries along the same bloodline. We are highly pedigreed. And from a religious point of view and from a Jewish halachic point of view, that is perfect. We marry along the same bloodline. From a genetic point of view, it is an absolute disaster because we very often bring out the genetic abnormalities 
that are so prevalent in ourselves in the third and fourth preceding generation. And this is why conditions like lactose intolerance, Tay-Sachs, the cerebral abnormalities, amino acidopathies, which are all genetic illnesses, that is why they are on the increase all the time. From a genetic point of view, it would be a good thing if a Jewish male married a woman from Honolulu. <laughs> I think, I think, Doctor Kassel, on, 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 on your as a side job, you can now be a shotgun and you know try and get the genome <laughs> mix it somewhat more. From a psycho, <laughs> from a, a, a physiological breastfeeding point of view, it's a disaster in some cases. Now, why do I say so? A classic example, and I'll take the classic example of lactose intolerance. The breast sugar, the sugar of breast milk consists of 50% lactose. If the lactose is not digested due to a deficiency of the enzyme lactase, the lactose then passes undigested into the colon of the baby where it turns into lactic acid. And the lactic acid then causes a bloated belly, crying and screaming in the baby, burnt buttocks, and severe baby distress. Distress for the baby and equal distress for the mother. Now, this is a situation in which the mother has no control whatsoever. There are one in every five Ashkenazi Jews that at the moment have some form of lactose intolerance, including the Ashkenazi Jew to speaking to you now. If I have a glass of milk, I will not be able to control myself. So, so uh, I was not successfully breastfed. But, but it is important to recognize these pitfalls in breastfeeding before they are too late because severe lactose intolerance, which is a three or four plus lactose intolerance, because you can measure the degree of lactose intolerance by simply sending off a stool sample, that type of lactose intolerance will not be corrected by giving lactase enzyme in the form of codeine. It'll appear at about three to six weeks of feeding or even earlier and just progressively go on with the baby's weight curve flattening and eventually starting to lose weight, producing great distress for for the baby and for the mother. Sorry, doctor, can I I just butt in over here? So just in terms of this, and, um, yeah, I, I hear you about all these genetic predispositions, would it not be something good to like check as 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 an as an ordinary course of business when when somebody has a baby that you actually go and check that as opposed to trying to breastfeed mother getting all tizzed up baby getting all tizzed up and only somewhere down the line you actually work out that the kid's lactose intolerant or like that doesn't work. What you'd say is absolutely correct. When you have a slavish. Uh, attitude to one form of feeding and refuse to be bent in any way, you can often go on doing this sort of thing without even checking a stool and producing Mm -hmm. increasing distress in the mother and the baby. In that case, breastfeeding is not best, as I've tried Mm -hmm. to say in in my introduction. So what you're saying is absolutely correct. There should be several screening programs. It should start with a pregnancy 
when patients should be screened for Tay-Sachs by the obstetrician for the carrier status. They do this. They also take histories now of lactose intolerance and other uh, metabolic abnormalities. And the doctors who are aware of this, and most people are aware of this, they do do these tests. But too often this is forgotten in the in the publicity and the mania that goes around uh, along with breastfeeding. Mm. You know, it can reach us to, to digress a little bit. When I started pediatrics 50 to 60 years ago, there was breastfeeding and there was artificial feeding, which only consisted of milk, cow's milk and carnation milk. There were no specialized formulas. In the premature unit at Baragwanath Hospital run by the late Sam Weyburn and Khan of Ashulam, they ran a premature baby unit where the babies were not touched with a drop of breast milk sucking for about at least six weeks. Those babies were all placed back on the breast after six weeks and they had no nipple confusion whatsoever. Right. So it puts pay to the, you know, to I think the, the, the overplayed thing about nipple confusion. Mm. Neither did any of these babies have any tongue tie which is so prevalent today. <clears throat> Dr. You know, can you speak about the statistics in, in uh, you know, the private wards, etc.? Right. Is it not so that, that our genetics play a role in those statistics? It shows in the statistics. The mother who comes from a poorer community knows she has to breastfeed because, first of all, it's the cleanest type of feeding. It's also... Is sterile. It provides excellent immunity when you're living in crowded conditions. And it also saves them a lot of money on artificial feeds, which today can cost the earth up to 800 rand a tin for some artificial feeds. So that tells you why the statistics are so high in the state hospitals. These mothers have the babies before 8 o'clock in the morning, they wrap the babies up with a blanket on their backs. They go home on the 4 o'clock bus. There are no lactation consultants or anything else. They simply go home and they breastfeed. And six weeks later, you will find all of them breastfeeding. And with us, with all the good intentions in the world, and with all our facilities, we don't quite match this level because we don't, we don't really have to. So it, 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 it's, it's again, it places a break on breastfeeding. And I feel like there's so many elements involved in this, though, because, you know, when, when you have a, a baby and it's your first child and you're not so sure exactly what you're doing, you're sitting in the hospital and, you, and a nurse comes along and tells you you're going to starve your baby because you don't know how you're breastfeeding. I mean, that just makes a, a first-time mother so nervous that, that the, I'm sure the pituitary gland can't function properly. Well, how does the pituitary gland get affected by the hypothalamus? There have been studies that have shown that if you come into a ward and you tell a mother that she's breastfeeding beautifully, the hypothalamus will react positively, the pituitary gland will react positively, and you'll produce lactogenic hormone. In the same studies, they've shown if you walk into a ward like some nurses or nursing aides do and say, I'm sorry, my dear, but your breastfeeding is completely useless, you're not producing enough milk, 
you have to give a complementary feed, you have to top up, that will immediately start to affect the pituitary cycle. The psychological factor in those lines and what you're saying is very real, and it's a reason why a lot of breastfeeding fails, even in a mother who desperately wants to breastfeed. The and you're also reason- being told by so many people, so many different points and so much information that it becomes overwhelming. Yes, well, you know, you you see the average breastfeeding mother, and I don't mean to be uh, <laughs> the, the the breastfeeding mother who feeds with manuals on how to breastfeed, uh, who who studies things on how to breastfeed. It's a natural function. A mammal can breastfeed in a hundred percent of cases. It sits down under a tree and it breastfeeds. And we can't do that because of the hypothalamic, because of the mm-hmm. psychological factor. And a lot of proponents of breastfeeding will tell you that the mother is best off with her husband and herself and perhaps some of her little children around her, but nobody else. In the same way as the ordinary bitch, the dog, who has a litter of four puppies, if you go near that bitch when it's feeding its puppies, It'll let go of the puppies, it'll chase you away, it'll bite you, and it'll go back and feed the puppies. The human is exactly the same. The hypothalamic factor is a very vital factor. And another factor that seriously impedes it today is the baby foods industry. The baby foods industry has blossomed into something that now comprises more than 100 or 200 different baby products of all types of ways of feeding a baby, uh, from the old-fashioned cow's milk and, or, and carnation milk to now we have 100 to 200 different products of feeding a baby. It's not necessary to do that. It brings me back to my original statement that the optimal way to feed a baby is the way that's best for mom and baby. Breastfeeding is no different to any other situation in medicine. It's like a seesaw or a pendulum. First, the pendulum goes up and everybody is a proponent of breastfeeding. Everything else is bad. Then the pendulum goes down and breastfeeding is bad. And artificial or specialized feeding is the in thing. And then the pendulum finally settles in the center. The pendulum here in Johannesburg, fortunately with the experts that we have, is beginning to find its central point. And this we can only commend all the people that are involved in breastfeeding, the pediatricians, the lactation consultants, and the people that assist the mothers in this regard. If I if I can just put in something over here, and I kind of like learnt it myself as a mother, I try to share it with, 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 with my daughters, is that... I think one of the God-given gifts of a mother is that she has intuition and that many, many times if you just actually trust yourself and, and you watch your baby's behavior and you're confident within yourself, you'll be able to breastfeed and you'll be able to do a lot more things with your child as opposed to be bombarded with so much you know, that, that is out there. Do it this way, do it that way. I remember the first time that I breastfed, it was my third child. My first two I couldn't because I was, I was pretty ill and um, whatever. And I remember that, that, that I, I was struggling with breastfeeding. I was crying and crying and crying because everybody says, hold the baby this way, hold the baby this way, do this, do that. And they were driving me mad. And in the middle of the night, probably on the, the second or third night, 
a nurse walked in and she just looked at me with pitiful eyes. And she said to me, Madam, she says, you know how to breastfeed because God has given you that gift. Just hold your baby, love it, let it suckle, and you'll be fine. And she actually completely relaxed me and just said, just do whatever's comfortable for you and the baby. You'll work it out which way, which position, how, do, when, you know, what cycle. And, and she actually set me on the road. And I think that that's an, an important message to, to, to give out to mothers. Those are very wise words. The reason why mothers fail with breastfeeding, particularly with a first baby, is the amount of useless information they are bombarded from, either by their families, by the nursing sisters, by the nursing consultants, and by everybody else. It's a natural function, breastfeeding, and it's a rhythm that you establish between yourself and the baby. The baby is a very sensitive human being. When it is born, its head circumference measures 32 to 35 centimeters. It has already got seven to the eight layers of its brain fully developed. From its life in utero, which I intend to do in another program for you, the baby already well knows what sort of a relationship it has with the mother. And it is this relationship that is known as bonding. The bonding is very, very important. But you can bond without breastfeeding as well, as long as you devote your attention to the baby and don't get a third party to look after your baby for the first six months or a year. You have to establish that cycle with your baby. And that, of course, brings us to the times of breastfeeding. Can we just hold that thought there over there? We're about to go for a break. I just want to say one comment before we go to a break. And that is, again, something else that, you know, that I've learned from my experience. I, I, I say always to my kids and to anybody who speaks about breastfeeding, I breastfed three and I bottle fed two. Now show me which one I'm bonded more to. You can see I'm bonded to all of them because bonding um, is not something that's only exclusive to breastfeeding. And if you bottle feed, you can't love your child and bond with your child. We're in an incredibly uh, important and fascinating discussion. If you'd like to join this um, discussion by asking a question of Dr. Kassel. It's 34519 or 061-895-1019. We'll be back just after the break. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kasulski and Fagy Stern. One of the things, Dr. Kassel, I'm actually fascinated to hear about now is times. Do you demand feed or do you schedule feed? Well, it's a very good question. Because the baby, unfortunately, doesn't carry a watch on its arm. (laughs) And despite what you might try to tell the baby, the baby can only react to you. If you give a feed four hourly and the baby takes uh, four hourly feeds, let's say 100 mil, and then you cut it to three hourly, it'll take 75 mil. If you cut it to two hourly, it'll take 50 mil. If you cut it to one hourly, it'll take 25 mil. If you cut it to half hourly, it'll take 12 mil. And if you cut it to quarter hourly, it'll take 15 mil, uh, 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 6 mil. The important thing to realize is that the baby is still getting the same quantity of food. It'll be st- the pituitary cycle will regulate itself according to the times that you are prepared to get undressed and feed the baby. And to adopt the ridiculous approach that you must pick up the baby every time it cries and put it on the breast, 
that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to have three or four sucks and it's going to go off to sleep and wake up in 15 minutes' time. And in this way, the first-time mother can end up naked day and night trying to feed her baby. It's deleterious. So you have to set yourself certain parameters. The ordinary full-term baby should not really be handled <clears throat> under four hourly in the day, under three hourly in the day, and under four hourly at night. But if a baby goes five hourly, or even six hourly, and it's a full-term, full-weight baby, good luck to you. It makes it a lot easier for everybody else. And I've seen mothers feed six hourly, six twelve, six twelve, and feed entirely successfully from the word go. So this question of of over-demand feeding, in my opinion, is not correct. You've got to teach the baby in the same way as you teach a mammal, that it can't keep coming to the breasts all the time. So in this case, a a a breastfed baby can never be overfed? Pardon? In this case, you're saying that a breastfed baby can never really be overfed? It can't be overfed. It will regulate itself. Amazing. The cycle will regulate itself, provided you don't interfere with the cycle. I think the other thing that that, that, that people have to realize that every fetch doesn't mean that the baby is hungry. The baby wants to suck for comfort, not for food, and that one should use, you know, a a, a dummy or if, if you're happy to give the thumb or whatever it is and give the baby the comfort it needs, not necessarily the food. I think that's one of the things that kind of like... You get stuck in a breast, breast, uh, breastfeeding because you, you can't see how much the baby's drunk. So you keep on like, you know, as a good Jewish mother going, well, maybe it's hungry. Maybe it's hungry. Well, maybe it's just fetchy. <laughs> just wants to. Well, there's an next disaster in medicine that the crying doesn't necessarily mean hunger. Uh, I'll do another program for you on colic. And my definition of colic is that colic is the diagnosis of the intellectually destitute. There is no <laughs> So I'm sorry if I've offended anybody with that statement. But the, the reason a baby cries is reflux. And about 90 to 95% of babies that cry in the first three months of life are actually refluxing. And reflux means, you, in the, to use the Yiddish expression, you're freshing too much. And the, 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 the moment you pick the baby up and keep feeding it with more food, you'll make the reflux even worse and distress the baby even more. So crying must not be interpreted necessarily as being hunger. It very often refers to too much feeding. And you, as you're correctly saying in your statement, you, you must be very careful of how you interpret crying in a baby. Because what happens is, all the do-gooders in the world, the family arrive and say, your baby's hungry, your baby's crying, you must feed him. And that's the pathway to disaster. Because in that way, you do start overfeeding and you start worsening the reflux. I have a question for you, Dr. Castle, on jaundice. I mean, all my babies are jaundiced. And again, with all the information out there and everyone telling you and giving, the, giving you opinions... Um, so many people have told me, oh, well, it's breast milk jaundice, and then a pediatrician will tell you, actually, no, you must feed as much as you can. So can you just tell us a bit about jaundice? Well, jaundice is another program on its own, but <clears throat> jaundice 
breast milk jaundice is a very real entity. It occurs because the hormone in breast milk, which comes from the mother who goes into labor, acts as an inhibitory factor on the liver cell in conjugating bilirubin from indirect to direct bilirubin. So it blocks that pathway, but it doesn't block it completely. And therefore, breast milk jaundice causes a physiological jaundice, a type of physiological jaundice. It will seldom go above 12 to 14 milligrams per cent. It will seldom cause any problems in the baby unless they're ancillary problems. And it can usually last for 6 to 12 weeks. This was a subject that I entered into with the Beth Dean when I had to give them a talk on how you should, how you should uh, determine the readiness of a baby for a breast. A level of 12 to 14 doesn't interfere with any factors in the baby at all and doesn't cause bleeding. And the real halachic reason for not doing a bris is not because the baby's jaundiced, but because it may come to some serious side effects from the jaundice. Breast milk jaundice is not a serious side effect. It can last for weeks. It can go, the jaundice persist in the sclera of the eyes and in the skin for up to six to twelve weeks. So in the olden days when you used to have the rabbonim that used to be very, very strict and never touch a baby that was jaundiced, you could go six to twelve weeks without having a breast done. This should so not just to be wrap done. up on the on the jaundice, do you say to carry on breastfeeding and not to formula feed? Definitely to carry on breastfeeding, not to interrupt the pituitary cycle. Otherwise, you will inter- you'll seriously impede the breastfeeding. Very, very, very interesting. That was actually. I never, never really understood the, the, the jaundice story. If you have any questions, we've got a couple of minutes. We're going to go for a break and we're, we're sadly going to have to wrap up because this is always just an incredible discussion. You can SMS on 34519 or 061-895-1019. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. Dr. Cusselsons, we only have a couple of minutes left. What what do you want to leave the listeners with right now in our discussion in terms of breastfeeding? Well, I want to leave them with my opening statement. The best way to feed a baby is a feed that needs to be mutually beneficial for both mother and baby and not distress either of them. But I want to conclude with one little statement that you always are asked, what should we eat? What should we eat? Well, the cows breastfeed and they go on eating grass. (laughs) Nothing happens to the little calves. The Indians go on eating curry. Nothing happens to their babies. If the Jewish mothers ate either grass or curry, it would seriously affect the baby. (laughs) the The answer to the question is, go on eating and drinking whatever you've eaten and drunk. You don't have to limit your diet unless you've got... A definite history of lactose intolerance, in which case you would limit your intake of dairy products if you were trying to breastfeed. But so when it comes to lactose intolerance, I know for myself that whenever I do have any milk and I'm breastfeeding, my baby is more fussy. Correct. But at the same time, you can use co-leaf in the baby, which is a replacement of the enzyme. Obviously, if you breastfed, you have had... Uh, more than enough enzyme, it's only a one or two plus lactose intolerance 
and no reason for giving up the breastfeeding. You can simply give co-leaf drops and carry on happily breastfeeding. Amazing. If you're we're told a couple of times you can't have cucumbers, you can't have cabbage, you can't have peppers. I mean, we're bombarded no, we're, with so much information. It's it's nonsense. The wind-producing foods, if they produce winds in you, they may do the same in the baby. Okay. You know, things like onions, garlic, uh, cabbage, cauliflower. You don't have excessive quantities of that. Eggs, bananas. But if you have the odd egg or the odd banana, it's not going to affect the baby. You know, you have to have a sane approach to the whole thing. Excellent. I think in general we'd like to also just finish off by saying, and I'm sure you've got to add, is the, that, that obviously, as you say, breastfeeding is incredible and it does help our baby's gut microbiome and the oral microbiome and give them a great immunity for future. There's no doubt about it. The immune system of the baby is not fully developed until 12 weeks of age. That is why a lot of vaccinations get delayed and they're not done immediately. Uh, and the breast milk, the, even if it's colostrum, the very first production of the breast, it does provide immunity. It does decrease the incidence of infections of the bowel, enterocolitis, it does produce additional sterility, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. If a mother right. cannot do that, it doesn't mean that the baby is going to die of an infection or get develop enterocolitis. As with you, we've had five children. We've got five children. The first three were never touched with a drop of breast milk. The last two were only breastfed. There's no difference in any of the five of them. And mm, exactly. The factor is bonding. Absolutely. Bonding the baby. And Absolutely. sure, you can't, you can't buy love in cans, but you can buy love by putting your, giving your baby a hug. <laughs> Dr. Cousins, you are full of wisdom and really like just makes, brings sense to sometimes an absolute maddening world. Thank you very much again for giving of your time and we look forward for you coming back on the radio um, to educate us again on how to live healthier and wealthier lives in a real sense. Thank you so much for oh, your time. Thank, thank you, uh, both of you. I would like to do programs on the... Uh, well, I'll discuss it with you, Faggy. Uh, I don't mind doing it once every two weeks or once every four weeks, whichever you want done. You'll just Excellent. Let Thank you so much for everything, Dr. Castle. Thank thank you. you All the listeners, thank you for joining in. I hope that you got some more um, down-to-earth information on how to live life naturally and healthily. And until next time, have a wonderful week.